Well, good morning. Christ is risen. risen Well, I hope you are in a good mood this morning, as the King James says, that you're in good cheer. If the three minutes of passing grace and peace didn't do it for you, you maybe take your palm frond and hit somebody beside you. (laughs) I hope you're in good, good cheer because I'm going to be talking about politics this morning, and I need you to be patient and and kind of open and allow kind of room for me to, to struggle with the words I, I need to find. David Lang, composer, some of you may know his music, he describes his craft this way. He says that he writes music that he knows is incredibly difficult even for the world's best musicians. And he says, because I write for live performance and the audience needs to feel the danger of the musicians struggling to find the notes in order to be caught in the moment. So this morning is going to be about me struggling to find the notes to catch you in that moment. Right? And my hope is that if, if I keep my heart in the right place and you keep your heart in the right place, that as I'm struggling to find those notes and you're caught in the moment giving grace to me as I struggle to find them, that the Lord will speak. And that you will hear the Lord speaking in, through, behind, over, and maybe even against my words about what he wants from you and from us. So with all that said, I'm going to read from Mark 11, the story of Jesus' triumphal entry and the cleansing of the temple, which is, in short, the most political action of Jesus' life. And it's the political act that triggers all of the events that we mark with Holy Week. And to put it bluntly, it's what he does on Palm Sunday that makes Good Friday happen in terms of the, the working of history. It's what he does in the temple that leads to his death in terms of the way humans respond to what he's about and what he's saying and doing. So with all that in mind, let's read Mark 11, and I'll reflect on it for just, just a few minutes. When they were approaching Jerusalem at Bethphage and Bethany, two cities, two small villages outside of Jerusalem, near the Mount of Olives, he sent two of his disciples and said to them, go into the village ahead of you, and immediately as you enter it, you will find tied there a colt that has never been ridden. Untie it and bring it. You will untie it and bring it. If anyone says to you, why are you doing this? Just say, the Lord needs it and will send it back here immediately. They went away and found a colt tied near a door outside in the street. As they were untying it, some of the bystanders said to them, what are you doing untying the colt? They told them what Jesus had said and they allowed them to take it. Then they brought the colt to Jesus and threw their cloaks on it, and he sat on it. Many people spread their cloaks on the road, and others spread leafy branches that they had cut in the fields. Then those who went ahead and those who followed were shouting, Hosanna! Blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our ancestor David. Hosanna in the highest heaven. Then he entered Jerusalem and went into the temple. And when he had looked around at everything, as it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. On the following day, when they came from Bethany, he was hungry. Seeing in the distance a fig tree in leaf, he went to see whether perhaps he would find anything on it. When he came to it, he found nothing but leaves, for it was not the season for figs. He said to it, may no one ever eat fruit from you again, and his disciples heard it. Then they came to Jerusalem. 
And he entered the temple and began to drive out those who were selling and those who were buying in the temple. And he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold doves. And he would not allow anyone to carry anything through the temple. He was teaching, saying, it is, is it not written, My house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations, but you have made it a den of robbers. And when the chief priests and the scribes heard it, they kept looking for a way to kill him. For they were afraid, because the whole crowd was spellbound by his teaching. And when evening came, Jesus and his disciples went out of the city. Lord, be with us in this moment. Give us ears to hear what you are saying. And the courage and the hope and the love and the faith to respond. Everyone said, Amen. Amen. Now, I don't know how you imagine this moment, this triumphal entry. But growing up, I I imagined it, I I think it worked into me somehow that this triumphal entry was a lot like the 4th of July parade in my small Oklahoma town. There weren't that many people there, and it was kind of campy and cheesy, a little bit silly, but it's your hometown and it's your parade and you recognize the prom queen as she drives by in the Corvette with the top down, right, waving. And, and it's a kind of fun moment with your hot dogs and your cinnamon rolls, right? And I think, uh, at least for me, that's the kind of feel that Palm Sunday has, right? That Jesus comes breezing into Jerusalem, everyone smiling and happy and waving and having, having a good time. But that's actually very far from what this moment must have been. It's much closer to what we've seen a couple of years ago on television with the Arab Spring. Remember nightly, on the nightly news we would see these images like Tahir Square where there are these masses of people, mobs of people, full-throated in their protest against the, the government that is calling for a revolution. And what's happening in this story is much more like that than it is like your small town 4th of July parade. It's an explosive moment. It's a tense moment. And it's a moment that Jesus, it seems, has calculated. I want you to notice a couple things about this this story as Mark tells it to us. First is the way in which he sends his disciples ahead to get the donkey and tells them that if anyone stops them, they're supposed to say, the Lord has need of it. And that's how he starts the fire of the rumor. That from that moment, as those bystanders see his two disciples take the colt, they start to say, Jesus is coming to Jerusalem. So that by the time he reaches these villages on the outside of Jerusalem, there's already a throng of people, full-throated in their celebration of Jesus and their call for his revelation. When they are crying Hosanna, what they're saying is, be our Messiah, save us now, accomplish our deliverance. And their energy, the intensity of this moment, is in their hope that he is going to ride into Jerusalem and overthrow their enemies. Mark is is very careful to point our attention in this direction because Mark draws on Isaiah's promise. The prophet Isaiah had promised Israel that they would experience a new exodus. They're in Babylonian captivity. They've been taken from their land. Their temple has been destroyed. But Isaiah promises there will be a day when the Lord will raise up a warrior who will destroy your enemies and accomplish a new exodus. And like Moses of old, he will lead you out of captivity, through the wilderness, back to your promised land, and that will climax as he comes into the city of Jerusalem and restores order, the order of the kingdom of David, to you. 
And you notice what the crowd is celebrating. Hosanna, save us now. Blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the kingdom of our ancestor David. And they're waving their palm fronds, and they're shouting their praises, and they're throwing their cloaks down in the street, because this is the moment of revolution. And Jesus, again, intends them to hear that. He's riding a donkey, which may seem accidental, but in fact it isn't at all, because there's another prophecy from the prophet Zechariah, that Israel will be oppressed on all sides by all of her enemies, but then the Lord will raise up a warrior, like our father David, and he will destroy all of our enemies. And then Zechariah gives this promise in a song. He says, look, Israel, your king comes to you riding on a donkey, and he will destroy the bow of Ephraim and overthrow the horses of Egypt. So when when Jesus comes riding toward Jerusalem on a donkey, everyone knows this is his moment his manifesto that he's bringing his kingdom, the kingdom of our father David. He is going to destroy our enemies. And all of the disciples are caught between elation and fear because they know that this is going to lead to conflict with Rome. In fact, some historians argue that every year at Passover, the Roman governor at the time, in this, in this particular time it would have been Pilate, also had a procession on this Sunday of Passover week. And he would ride from his capital in Caesarea through from the west into Jerusalem on his war horse with all of his troops. And at the same time, they say, Jesus would have been coming from the east on his donkey with his disciples shuffling along behind. And that image helps you start to feel the ways in which Jesus is announcing his politics. He's announcing his kingdom. This is his campaign speech. This is my kingdom come. And then it's weirdly, wildly anticlimactic. You've got this intense energy. This spark of revolution is already burning. He rides into the city. He rides through the heart of the city. He dismounts in the temple, looks around, and goes away. (laughs) You know the disciples. I mean, they'd been with Jesus long enough to know he would disappoint them. But you know they were really let down that night. (laughs) Like, But here's... And hear what I'm saying. I don't, I don't mean to caricature Jesus, but I think there's a reason that he didn't cleanse the temple that night. I mean, he rides into Jerusalem. The throngs are there. He goes to the temple, and the text says he looks around at everything and goes outside the city. Then returns the next day to cleanse it. And I think that it, it's very likely that what Mark wants us to see is that Jesus wants the temple cleansing to happen in broad daylight with everyone there. Because he wants to announce his kingdom so that everyone sees who he is and what he's about. He wants it to be on all of the nightly news channels. And so he acts in that way. And I think in this, in this story, there's a kind of pattern for the way God works in our lives. That in, in a certain sense, just like Palm Sunday initiates Holy Week that culminates in resurrection... So the coming of Jesus into our life over and over culminates that process of sanctification, of being made holy. The Lord comes to us, not just once, but over and over in the course of our life as we need him, as he sees that we need him, as we call to him or he initiates to us. He comes and we celebrate because we misunderstand what he's really doing. 
Then the realization hits us, oh, he's up to something else, and we submit to it. That's the cross. And then through the cross, we experience the life he means for us. You know, it fascinates me. I mean, you have, any of you have your palm fronds? We just wave them a moment, hit somebody with them. You know that next year on Ash Wednesday, on, in most traditions, or many Christian traditions, the ashes they use come from burning those palm fronds. And it's true here as well. Why? Because it's a, it's a lesson that what we wave today as we yield it to the Lord will have to at some point turn to repentance. And he will consume it and mark us with the cross and we'll move through the process again. And that's the pattern of holiness in our life. We respond to the Lord only to find out later that our response was mixed with, with faithfulness and unfaithfulness. Because in our hearts, at the depths of our hearts, there are needs. All of us have needs that are in us because God made us to be needy creatures. To be human is to need not only God, but to need one another. To need not only water and bread and air and clothing, but to need communion with God and with one another. We're made to be needy, but sin diseases those needs. And all of us come to God and come to one another with legitimate needs that are eaten up with unfaithfulness. And we can never tell what in me right now and what in this hunger that I feel is legitimate because I'm a needy creature and what in this hunger is diseased and corrupted by sin. And only the Lord can separate legitimate need from illegitimate need. I don't know my own heart well enough to know what's pulling me along. Is it this cancer of sin that's eaten up my need or is it something that's natural something he's given me calls me to need and so the process of the christian life is always letting the lord sort that in fact i would argue that discipleship is just that discipleship is remaining open to the lord so that he can separate your needs from your false needs and teach us this is really who you are this is who you thought you were and the lord makes that separation over and over again so His coming, then, is always both fulfilling and disappointing. It's fulfilling because it meets the need that's at the heart of me, that is my true identity. But it's disappointing because it also fails to meet what I thought I needed. And this is why in evangelism, and I'm just going to hit this point and move past it quickly, in evangelism, if we're going to evangelize faithfully, we always invite and warn. We always say, come meet someone who can give you life. But let me tell you, he's not what you expect. Come enjoy the life that we know as the church. But let me warn you, there's a lot about this life that doesn't make a lot of sense. It takes a long time for you to start to understand what he's up to. His ways aren't our ways. His thoughts aren't our thoughts. And there's something about following Jesus that is delightful and joyful. And there's something about following Jesus that's the hardest thing possible to imagine. And evangelism is telling that story right up front. Not telling the invitation part and later on Wednesday night Bible study with a few people giving them the warning. (laughs) Evangelism is right up front to everyone. Let us tell you, there is nothing more joyful than knowing the Lord. And there's nothing more frightening than knowing the Lord. Right up front, that's the story. And ultimately we trust that the yes is deeper than the no that the joy is deeper than the fear, but make no mistake, there is fear. Because he's holy. He's a consuming fire. And his goodness is so unrelenting that he won't allow us to hold on to our idols. He won't allow us to hold on to our disease. 
So in this story, we come after his entry, after his coming to the temple, looking around and leaving for the night. We come to one of the strangest aspects of Jesus' whole career, and that's the cursing of the fig tree. Let's read this text together. Verse 20 of that same chapter. In the morning, as they passed by, they saw the fig tree wither away to its roots, the fig tree that he had cursed the day before. Then Peter remembered and said to him, Rabbi, look, the fig tree that you cursed has withered. Now this, this is not the Jesus we often talk about. We talk about the Jesus who blesses, not the Jesus who curses. We talk about the Jesus who restores, not the Jesus who drives his enemies out of the temple. And yet there's a part of us, I think, at least there's a part of me, and I suspect in many of us, that are attracted to the violence of Jesus in this moment. Because we're, we're drawn to think that maybe this legitimates that in us that wants the whip and the curse. Because over the course of our lives, there are going to be moments in which we feel injustice is so pointed that we have been wronged or others have been wronged so decisively that the only right response is a whip or a curse. And I see this play out in my own life, the life of my friends, the life of my family, the life of people that I know only through social media. I, I can see those moments in which they're tempted to reach for the whip and the curse. Whether it's about dis disorder in their own lives, their own families, or it's about some kind of large-scale geopolitical issue, terrorism, corruption in government, this pull toward the whip and the curse. So here's where we're about to get into that part where the music gets hard for me to play, and you have to kind of lean into the moment, right? I'm going to try to find the best, most gracious words I can find, but here we are. In this story, Jesus curses the fig tree, and the next day it's withered from the roots up, and Peter is delighted. <laughs> and he wants the secret. Tell me the incantation for that curse. <laughs> Not because I have some fig trees that I want to use it on, but I have some people I might want to use it on. And I want you to imagine that disease in Peter's heart, that's in all of our hearts too, that sees the Jesus of the whip and the curse and thinks, now that's a Jesus I can get behind. That's a Jesus who knows about revenge, who knows about justice, who knows about driving evil out of the world. And I think maybe in our lighter moments, maybe our better moments, we think we're drawn to the Jesus who heals the blind and raises the dead. But in our darker moments... I think we're drawn to the Jesus who whips his enemies out of the temple and curses the fig tree. And I think Peter is having one of those darker moments. And I want you to notice what he says. So he says, look, the fig tree is, is withered. Jesus says, have faith in God. Truly, I tell you, if you say to this mountain, be taken up and thrown into the sea, and if you do not doubt in your heart, but believe that you, what you say will come to pass, it will be done for you. So I tell you, whatever you ask for in prayer, believe that you have received it and it will be yours. And at this point, Peter is speaking in tongues. Because he, he has finally gotten to the moment. And by the way, when Jesus says, say to this mountain, be cast into the sea, 
He's talking about the temple mount. Not just any mountain, but the mountain on which the temple that I just cleansed rests. And what he's saying is, you have the power to bring judgment against all of this order and disorder. And you imagine how dizzying that was for Peter with his ambitions? And right at that moment, just as Peter is ecstatic with joy that he is finally being given the power to do what's in his heart to do, and all of the other disciples with him, just at that moment, Jesus does what Jesus always does, and he disappoints them. He bewilders them. He, as we say, pulls the rug right out from underneath them. Jesus says, ask for anything. Even You could even curse the temple in the way that I've cursed this fig tree, and it would be destroyed. It would be withered in the same way this tree is. And just in that moment, Jesus says, so whenever you stand praying, forgive. Like, that doesn't calculate. You're talking about cursing, not forgiving. You're talking about speaking a word that ends our enemy's power. We overcome them. And now you're talking about forgiving them, which leaves them in power. Jesus says, whenever you stand praying, forgive. If you have anything against anyone, if anything against anyone, think about how expansive that is. Anything against anyone, forgive. So that your Father in heaven may also forgive you your trespasses. So I think this story of the temple cleansing, of the triumphal entry, of the cursing of the fig tree, this Palm Sunday story, is not only a pattern for God's work in our personal lives, it's the paradigm of the church's calling. We are called to be the people of God. We are called to embody this character, to move into the space that he created. Because here's, here's what actually was happening on Palm Sunday, he was clearing space in the temple. And notice, he not only drove out the money changers and turned over their tables and let their doves go, the text says he stood in the temple and would not let anyone pass through. And not for a few moments, but for days, he patrols this space and teaches from this space. And what he teaches them over and over again is this truth. This is my father's house and you've made it a den of robbers, but it's meant to be a house of prayer for all nations. This is what Jesus' violence does. It creates space for intercession and forgiveness for all people. He takes up the whip and the curse because he has an embrace and a blessing that he means to get to. The whip is less than the embrace. The exclusion is just in service of the embrace. The curse is just to make room for the blessing. And then he creates all of this space in the temple that is his body for us to pray and for us to stand in him and if we have anything against anyone to forgive. Now there are ways in which I think worldly politics corrupts our imaginations. And if all of this last section has been the hard music to play, this is the especially hard music to play. And I'm not going to hit all the notes I want to hit. So be gracious with me. And try to hear the notes I'm trying to play. I, I see this playing out in two ways. Again, I'm talking about my friends. I'm, I'm going to give you an example of two friends of mine to, to illustrate this. 
I think worldly politics poisons our imaginations, and that looks basically looks like one of two mistakes. One, it looks like what I'm going to call realism. Realism, which sees evil in the world and says, well, listen, I love Jesus, and I know he wants us to love our enemies, but let's be real. I mean, I believe in prayer. I believe the Holy Spirit is, is active in the world, but when you see evil like this, I mean, let's be real. You, you, know, you hear the note here? in which we're looking in the face of injustice, corruption, of evil. And what comes up out of us really is confidence in the whip and the curse, not confidence in the embrace and the blessing. I I have a friend, a pastor, who his Facebook feed is a reflection, I think, of this so much of the time. I mean, some of the times you see on his Facebook feed the, the, the pastor's heart. Pray for this family in our church. But then right after that, you will see something like this. I believe God loves all people, but let's nuke ISIS and get it over with. That's a direct quote. And then, and this is no lie, and don't try to get on your phones and find this person right now. He has started a GoFundMe account to raise money to start a private army. I couldn't make this up if I wanted to. I wouldn't make this up if I could to fight ISIS. Now this isn't someone I heard about. This is someone I know, someone I've been in the room with, someone I've talked with. And here's here's what grieves me about that. It's not that there's It's not that I know all the ways in which the Lord wants to work in the world, and I'm not in some kind of offhanded way saying there's never a time for violence. That's a hard conversation, and I'm not pretending it's an easy one. But when our default mode is, let's be real, it betrays a lack of faith, I think, in the work of the Spirit to bring about God's purposes in the world. And it's as if our Christianity is only useful when the world isn't difficult. We love being Christian until something really wrong happens, and then we're going to take it into our own hands. And on the other extreme is what I'm going to call idealism, which has this kind of easy belief that the Lord always will settle things if you just trust him, and that the world's not really that broken. If you had enough faith, you could settle all of these rights. And I have another pastor friend who, he is Facebook feed, it gets a little self-righteous sometimes because for him, apparently, this is all pretty simple. Jesus said to love your enemies. Killing them is not loving them. Ergo, all of you who talk about killing your enemies, you're not Christian. And that seems to me unfaithful too. I mean, at least it's taking Jesus' word seriously, but, but it's not taking the brokenness of the world seriously. And what I feel like is between those two extremes, you've got people who they don't really see Jesus, they just see the brokenness of the world. And then you've got people who they think they see Jesus, and they never see the brokenness of the world. And what it makes me think is neither of them are really seeing much of anything except what the enemy wants them to see. And what we need is not that kind of realism or that kind of idealism. What we need is faithfulness and confidence in God. About five years ago, and I'm almost done, so if you've survived to this point, you're probably going to be all right. And then you can hit me with a palm frond later. About five years ago, there was a, an article written by, uh, you, again, you don't need to know who it is. Don't try to look on your phones right now. And he was talking about, I and mean, he's a, a fairly well-known figure in the Christian world, 
he was talking about being on the Mount of Beatitudes, the Mount where Jesus gave the sermon, on Easter, praying. And this was one of, the, one of those moments in which there was, as now, again, there was a lot of fear about the Iranian nuclear threat. And so he says, he's on the Mount of Beatitudes, he's praying, and he, he's seized by this awareness, he says, that if we don't act militarily, and by we he means the United States, if we don't act militarily, Iran is going to get a nuclear weapon, they're going to bomb Israel, and no Christians will ever be able to sit here again. And so he says, I believe in peace, I want to follow Jesus, but we have to be realistic. That's the phrase. Now I want you to hear me. Please hear what I'm trying to say. I don't know when the time comes for an army to be mobilized against an enemy. I think there are those times that come in the world. Tragically, unfortunately, horrifically, war is apparently something that is going to happen. What worries me about that story is not that he's trying to be realistic. It's that he's defaulting to that on the Mount of Beatitudes during prayer. And if it weren't horrifying, it would be hilarious that in prayer, on the Mount where Jesus said, love your enemies, turn the other cheek, go the extra mile, give them your coat too, blessed are the peacemakers, for theirs is the kingdom of God, on that mountain... His realism is drowning out the memory of the Jesus who spoke from that mountain. So again, I I don't know what happens when we get here and we have to have the hard conversation about what do we do about ISIS? What do we do about these enemies? I mean way back here, before we ever get to that conversation, what's in our hearts when we see our enemies? And what worries me is that if we don't start with prayer... And start with this desire for the embrace and for the blessing, for forgiveness. Then when we get to this conversation, we will be so diseased with the politics of the world, we won't be able to embody the politics of the kingdom. This conversation has to come. But let's start here and become the kind of people when we get to this conversation, what's in our hearts at the deepest level is the love of God so that this can be a house of prayer for all people. And so I end with this, and Pastor Ed's going to come. This is why I think the Eucharist is so vital for us every week. Because this meal is a reminder that we belong to a kingdom that's not of this world. Because when we gather at this table, we all come, and we come with different politics. If if I were to poll you, and I'm not going to, and don't volunteer the information... I know in this room right now there are some of you who are on the, quote, right and some of you who are on the, quote, left. There are some of you whose politics looks more like that than this and others of you who find that repellent and repulsive. repulsive. But here's the thing. At this table, we lay all that down. And there's nothing wrong with, with having a political affiliation and agenda as long as you hold it with open hands and know when to put it down and know that when we come to this table he calls those of us from the left and those of us from the right to crucify all of those ambitions and fears and desires and submit them to his desires and ambitions and at this table we remember ourselves 
as the people who pray for all nations. And that is the politics of God. Thanks for listening to this message from Sanctuary Church. If you're in the Tulsa area, we invite you to attend one of our weekend services at 5 p.m. on Saturday, 9 a.m. or 11 a.m. on Sundays. And if you would like more information on who we are and what we're about here at Sanctuary or to give online, please visit our website at SanctuaryTulsa.com or you can download our mobile app from the App Store or Google Play. We hope you'll join us again next time. Have a great week.